If you're a guest with us today, we are so delighted that you are here. Uh, if you're watching online and worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful that you've joined us too. And I want you to know that we're in a series called Game Changer, and it's a look at the life of Christ through the eyes of the folks whose life He forever transformed. This morning, we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and we're taking a look at the whole truth. This last June, Chester Nez passed away at the age of 93. Chester was, one, was the last of the original 29 Navajo wind talkers who developed a code using their Navajo language, which at the time only 30 non-Navajo people understood, and it's not a written language, it's only a spoken language, and so they developed a code using that during World War II that was never broken. It was used to signal from Marine unit to Marine unit, and they are credited because of all that they did, their speed, their skill, their accuracy, under ferocious attack, uh, in the Pacific, from the Marshall Islands to Iwo Jima, uh, they are credited with saving literally tens of thousands of U.S. servicemen's lives and helping to bring the war to a speedy conclusion. Chester and his fellow wind talkers were game changers. They used a creative idea under the most unique circumstances to forever change history. This event, recorded in Mark's Gospel, is another game-changing moment in the life of our Savior. And within this story, four unnamed men use a creative idea under the most unique circumstances to forever change the life of their paralyzed friend. And in the process, I believe their lives were transformed as well. Now, I could read the story to you this morning, but I'd rather just tell you the story. You can go home later and read it in its entirety from the gospel accounts. But let me tell you the story of what I believe is one of the richest men Jesus ever encountered in his earthly ministry. He lived by the Sea of Galilee in the community of Capernaum, which was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This rich man may have been a fisherman at one time, but at the time of our story, all that has changed. As a matter of fact, his life has taken a severe turn for the worst. He has become paralyzed. And so he couldn't do any of the things that he had maybe at one time been able to do, and certainly none of the things that he longed to do. He couldn't even beg on his own because somebody had to carry him to a place where he would meet other people in order to receive their gifts of benevolence. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that kind of a condition, having never experienced paralysis, being able to walk and to move freely. I can't, I can't grasp what, what an impact that would make on a person's life. I know what it's like to get out of bed sometimes at night when your leg has gone to sleep and it's completely numb and you stumble and flail around until you can kind of catch yourself and then the feeling begins to return, but that's just momentary. To, to, to have that all the time, would just be incomprehensible. And to add to that lack of feeling, these other feelings makes it even worse. Fear, loneliness, embarrassment, anger, bitterness, 
a sense of uselessness, inadequacy, frustration, impatience. The list is long, and so are the days when you cannot move on your own power. Maintaining one's sanity would have taken every effort you could muster. Now, the Bible is silent on this next point, so I'm speculating, okay? This is my opinion. I'm just speculating, but it's based on what I sense in the story. I believe that despite his circumstances, this paralytic demonstrated a positive attitude. You say, well, why do you think that? Because he had four friends that were willing to do anything for him. My experience in life has been that if you're grouchy and negative and pessimistic, you don't have friends. You know people who are that way? How many friends do they have? But these guys, these guys were willing to do anything. I've wondered if these are the guys that took him to beg in the morning. And maybe he was always joking with him. Maybe they were the ones that would bring him back when day was done. Maybe he had a new joke each day when they came to pick him up, literally pick him up. I wonder if his sense of humor kept them laughing. I wonder if his words of encouragement and his genuine sense of gratitude kept them buoyed up in their spirits. I just have this feeling that they would have gone anywhere and done anything they could for their friend, and the day happened when that's exactly what they did. Jesus was in town, and he was preaching. He was in a house. The house is most likely Peter's house. It was a house there in Capernaum, and a crowd had squeezed its way into this house, filling every nook and cranny, and those who couldn't get in crowded around the windows and the doors outside. Sardines packed in mustard sauce have more room than the people did in that house in Capernaum that day. This quintet Four friends and a paralytic arrive a bit too late to get a front row seat. <laughs> they got there too late to even see Jesus. They couldn't get in the door. They couldn't get to the windows. And these guys were undaunted. They were not going to be deterred for what they saw as their one golden opportunity to make an incredible difference in their friend's life. And so they climbed up the stairs, the outside stairs, to the flat roof of the house and did the only thing they knew to do to get their friend to Jesus and that is they begin to dig away at the twigs and the straw and the clay that formed the roof. Bare hands and maybe fishermen's knives are the only tools they had. Have you ever thought about how distracting that would be to the crowd below? You know, I, I have been a preacher long enough to know it does not take much to lose a crowd. All right, far less than this. Sometimes you just lose yourself all on your own as you're out and you're gone and you're distracted from everything. But this, you got leaves and you got twigs and you got dust and you got chunks of dirt falling. I would have lost interest in my sermon if this was happening at that day and time. I remember when I was a teenager, I was late in my teens and I preached for a little church in Troy, Indiana, down on the Ohio River, the Troy Christian Church. Now, I got, you got to know, I'm still nervous when I preach, but I was really nervous as a teenager, because I hadn't preached that very many times, and about a third of the way, third of the way through my sermon, there is this rumbling, grumbling sound at the back of the auditorium, and about four ceiling tiles broke through, and water just cascaded down out of the leaky belfry. Nobody knew that water had been gathering up in there. I lost the crowd at that point in time in the preaching. Um, I lost interest in my sermon at that point in time. I mean, who, who knew that they'd gone from immersion to pouring? I mean, who would think that at that point in time? 
And, and to this day, to this, all these years later, whenever I meet some of the good folks at the Troy Christian Church, they always say, do you remember the night when you were preaching? Of course I remember the night when I was preaching and that happened. There are some worship services that just, they leave a lasting impact in your mind. They are simply unforgettable. Well, this moment in Capernaum, in this house, that service was simply unforgettable. The house was uncomfortably hot. It was packed with sweaty people in the days before deodorant, and these people also smelled a fish because this is a fishing community. Windows and doorways were blocked by other sweaty listeners, so there was no circulation in the house. That place must have been rank. <laughs> Add to the sticky, humid atmosphere, swirling dirt and chunks of mud falling from the ceiling, and you've got the perfect recipe for room rage. And some of the people weren't very happy. But the boys up on the roof didn't care. They had one purpose, get their friend to Jesus. When they had a hole large enough, they began to winch their, I'm sure, slightly embarrassed friend down through the hole until he hung right in front of Jesus. And can I tell you, I know that the people in that crowd that day didn't like any of this. And can I tell you that Jesus loved every moment. What a demonstration of faith. Wow. And if you think that the hole in the roof and the, and the whole paralytic thing is a surprise, just, just wait until you hear what the first words are out of Jesus' mouth. <laughs> he looked compassionately at the man suspended in front of him, and he said with all of the compassion in his heart, Son, your sins are forgiven. You just see the look on the faces of the guys on the roof. What? 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 For, for what? For, forgiven. Not Not healed? Forgive it. That's not what we brought him for. Suddenly, this statement of Jesus literally sweeps through the crowd in that house, and there is, there is misunderstanding on every face, but it represents something different with everyone. The religious leaders' faces registered anger because they knew that only God could forgive sins, and they're right, only God could. But Jesus was making a claim at that moment to be God in the flesh. And the faces on the crowd registered confusion. Everybody knew that the man was being let down so that Jesus would heal him. They knew this guy. They knew he'd been a paralytic. The four faces peering down from the hole up above in the roof registered disappointment. They'd worked so hard. His life would be so changed if Jesus would just heal him. And, and all you're going to say is, your, your sins are forgiven. And the face on the man, the paralytic, I believe was nothing but pure joy because you cannot look into the eyes of God and be any less than joyful. Reading the minds of the religious elite, Jesus then asked this question. He scolded them for their doubts and then he asked, verse 9 of chapter 2, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. That's a pretty straightforward question. There's an easy answer to it. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, you, you can't either prove or disprove. You can't affirm or dismiss that statement because there's no way of proving it. But if I said to you, and you are 
paralyzed, get up, take your mat and go home, and you can't get up and take your mat and walk out of there, then, then I'm, I'm proven as a charlatan. You know, I'm shown to be one who lacks credibility. See, words are cheap, but, but actions, actions tell the story. Jesus sets them up for what is really happening here, and he says, so that you'll know that I have the power to forgive sins. And the paralytic gets up, rolls up his mat, and walks. There are no atrophied muscles here, folks. There is no physical therapist that is called in to help the guy. He just walks full and strong. Isn't it funny? He couldn't get into the house, but when he starts making his way for the, toward the door, everybody parts and lets him out. You see, our lives are really changed when we're in the presence of God who does something powerful and great. We find a way to move and change. Now, you may be wondering this morning why I describe this paralytic as one of the richest men that Jesus ever met, despite the fact that he probably didn't have hardly any money at all. And the answer is simple. He met Jesus face to face. He had his sins forgiven. He was healed of his paralysis. And he had four of the best friends anybody could ever have. Anybody who's got all that is rich beyond description. Now, there's some good application for us in this story. And I want to give you just two things to take home with you this morning. And here's the first one. Being a friend is more important than having a friend. Being a friend is more important than having a friend. If you were to identify the main character of this story, would you choose Jesus or the paralytic? Would you be surprised this morning if I said neither? Now, that, that's not to take anything away from Jesus, who is the central figure for everything that is going on here and in every story of the gospel. But in this story, the main character, or should I say characters, I believe, are the four friends who were willing to do anything to help their paralytic buddy. I, I wish we knew the connection between these five. Uh, that, because I, I've learned through the years that unless you have a strong bond, friendships don't take place. Maybe it was uh, that they were fishing partners at one time. After all, they lived in Capernaum, which was a, uh, a community known for its fishing careers. Maybe they were all the same age and they had studied together. Maybe they were all five married to five sisters. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I just know that strong relationships like friendships don't develop without something that connects us to one another. There are many connecting points. Let me give you three of the most common, all right? Uh, age is a connecting point. Uh, people from the same generation or the same stage in life connect easily because they share so much in common from a period of time or the music that they like or the clothing styles or their first cars or their third grade teachers or favorite movies or college experiences or infamous news stories or military service. The list goes on and on. They can compare notes on raising children, health concerns, and retirement planning all because they grew up in the same era of time. Age is a connecting point. Another connecting point is hobbies or interests. Whenever I meet someone who's in, who enjoys antique cars and aviation as much as I do, I don't have to know them well to feel a connection, an immediate connection. Conversation comes easy. And what's more, when you share those same interests, you tend to want to help each other accomplish those interests. Think about what you enjoy doing in your spare time. And then think about how many friendships or acquaintances you have that are connected with that interest. It's amazing how important that connecting point is, which that then becomes a tool for us. Here's the third thing. Believe it or not, suffering is also a connecting point. 
As the old expression goes, and it's really true, misery loves company. Suffering people gravitate toward others who are experiencing a similar trial in their life. Widows enjoy the company of other women who have also lost their husbands. Cancer patients connect with others who have gone through chemo or radiation. Struggling parents learn, long to hear how other struggling parents are adjusting to an estranged child. Suffering is a terrific connecting point. When you are hurting, it's wonderful to be around other people who can share and understand what you're going through. Now, here's, here's the point. All of these are connecting points that are tools for us to reach out and develop friendships. Take an inventory of, of your likes, your dislikes, your age, what, what you've been through and your experiences, and then begin to look for people who need a friend and you're the perfect match. And here's the, here's the joy about it, and that is when you become a friend, you will have a friend. If you set out to have friends, you, you probably aren't going to do too well, but if you set out to be a friend, you'll have a friend. And you may, you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal about being a friend anyway? Ah, the story in the ministry of Jesus that we've been talking about this morning, friendship was a game changer. Without friends, the paralytic would never have been healed physically or spiritually. And as I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again this week, our Christian responsibility of introducing other people to Jesus Christ and sharing our faith in him begins with a relationship. I don't know about you, but I will be honest with you. I'm much more skeptical about people today than I used to be. Uh, I don't know if it's the change in our culture, our society, the world, and whatever else. I'm a little bit guarded. I think part of it comes because I've been burned in the past, and I'm a little bit jaded because of those bad circumstances, and so I don't just immediately trust people. And really, I think I'm more open than some people I know. I want to trust people. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I, I just am not ready to trust them completely until I have a relationship with that person and that trust has been earned. If you meet a person for the first time and then you begin to attack them with a 15-pound family Bible and pass out a dozen religious pamphlets, they're going to run from you as fast as they possibly can. I would run from you as fast as I possibly can, and I'm a believer. It, that's not what you, you, would, you would immediately conclude. This person has an agenda. And most people don't want a relationship that begins with an agenda. You build the relationship, and then you earn the right to speak Jesus into their lives, and it will come at a time when they trust you and when their knowledge of Jesus Christ then becomes a life-changing knowledge. Because, you see, here's our conclusion. This is the way we think. If you act wacky about this kind of stuff, most people will think if you're wacky, then the Savior that you serve is wacky. Be genuine in your relationships. Earn the right to speak about your faith. Our other Christian responsibility is to love our neighbor as ourselves. That also begins with a relationship. How do you know what your neighbor needs if you don't really know him or her? When we look at this story and you said, well, the need that I would identify in this story is that the, the paralytic need to be healed. But that's only one of the needs in this story. There are multiple needs. Uh, why would these people tolerate a hot, uncomfortable condition of being in the house? Why didn't most of them say, I'll just wait until he preaches outside and I'll go hear him then? 
Why did they crowd in and around the windows? It's because these people were searching for God and they knew that they could find him in Jesus Christ and they needed him so badly that they weren't willing to wait for another occasion. They needed him now. We live in a world that needs God. It may be not the the most obvious need that we recognize, but it is a big need. The four friends needed affirmation for their actions. They had seriously damaged somebody's roof in an effort to help a friend. They wanted to make sure that their trespass had been worth the risk. I wish the Bible told us who fixed the roof. It doesn't. Maybe. Maybe. When nobody was looking, Jesus fixed it. I just know that the four friends needed affirmation that they were doing the right thing. The teachers of the law were in danger of missing the opportunity of a lifetime. They were so blind to their own interpretations of the law that they missed the lawgiver himself. They needed spiritual insight into God's word that could come only from the one who authored it from the beginning. And so they had a huge need that was going unmet. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that sometimes we get hung up on the big stuff, and if we don't see a big need, we kind of sit back and do nothing. But big need or small need, our neighbors are full of needs, and if you don't have a relationship with those who are in your life, you won't be able to meet any need, big or small. And that's why friendship matters. It's because when you build a friendship, you can help meet the most important needs of their life, which are spiritual. And you will earn the trust to speak Jesus into their lives. Here's the last thing. Spiritual healing is more important than physical healing. Spiritual healing is more important than physical healing. When these four men carried their friend Jesus, they had one thing on their minds, that he could walk again. That would would put him back to work. He would be able to provide for his family. He'd be able to get down on the floor and play with his kids or his grandkids He would be able to be an accepted part of society again if he could just be healed. Because you see, the people of Capernaum are are just like we are today. And we're certainly like another situation in the scriptures where the disciples asked Jesus when they came across the blind man. They said, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Of course, the answer was neither one of them sinned. The blindness wasn't a result of sin. But how often have you thought when somebody goes through a calamitous part of their life, say, wow, wonder what that person did to deserve that. Wonder why God's punishing them. I've had people ask me, why is God punishing me through this? That's not it, folks. We live in a world that is broken, broken by the power of sin. And in a broken world, innocent people suffer like guilty people suffer. Young people suffer like old people suffer. The good suffer just like the bad people suffer because the power of sin at work in this world is no respecter of persons. Which means, which means that when you pray for some physical healing and God does not answer your prayer like you ask him to, that's not the most important answer. That's not the biggest need. Because any physical healing is temporary at best. The most important healing is spiritual. So I will ask you, where are you going to find spiritual direction and guidance in your life? Where do you look for direction? A recent article by USA Today tells us that most people use their smartphones to get directions anymore. 
Uh, and in 2014, they surveyed and found the top five locations most Googled on, on cell phones. You ready for this? Number one, Walmart. Number two, Starbucks. Number three, Target. Number four, McDonald's. Number five, Home Depot. Five most Googled directions in life. If that's the only direction you're seeking, you'll never find the right destination. You've got to be looking for spiritual direction above all else. Don't assume people know enough to find their way to God. If, if, if you say, well, I, I'm not going to share my faith. I, I'm not going to talk about spiritual things. This person obviously knows enough. Don't assume that they know enough. <laughs> Nandarina Hinches invited her friend to attend a church service with her, but her friend shook her head and said, no, no. I haven't gone in a long time. I think it's too late for me. Besides, I've probably already broken all seven commandments. <laughs> Don't assume people know the truth because that statement was filled with a lot of untruths, but here's the biggest one. This is the truth. It's never too late to come home to Jesus even if you've broken all ten of the commandments. It's never too late to come home to him. Those around you and you and me, we need Jesus Christ more than anything else. Unfortunately, most people have a poor view of spiritual matters. Uh, tonight, uh, I am assuming that Marshawn Lynch, running back for the Seattle Seahawks, will participate in the game. This week, he was under the threat of a $500,000 fine if he didn't once again step up to the plate and answer the questions of his contractual obligation to the media. <laughs> so on media day, you, you've known this, you've been watching the news and everything, Marshawn Lynch set his cell phone for less than five minutes and he answered every question with the same reply. He said, I'm only here so I won't get fined. I'm only here so I won't get fined. Not the best response, is it? And yet I know a lot of believers and certainly people on the fence who approach their faith with the very same attitude. We read our Bible, we pray, we attend church, we, we serve sometimes just so God won't fine us for spiritual noncompliance. Our souls and the souls of others are the most treasured part of our lives. And, and, and if you ever have to choose between physical healing and spiritual healing, pick the spiritual, it's the one that changes forever. Stay close to the Lord. Seek Him for your direction. You may not get the healing in this life, but if you stick close to Him, you will be healed. Maybe there. Because there, He says, we all get new bodies anyway. But that's only going to happen if you've been spiritually healed first. This past week marked the 70th anniversary of the liberation of those held captive in the Auschwitz concentration camp. I cannot look at the pictures without my mind being boggled. I, I, I can't fathom that one human being could treat another human being with such utter disregard. What Auschwitz was to the body, mind, and emotions Sin is to our souls. 
On that day in that house in Capernaum, Jesus liberated the paralytic's soul. If Jesus hadn't healed his legs, it would still have been the most glorious day of his life because it changed his eternity. The physical healing only lasted as long as his life did, but he gave his man freedom from sin and the promise of eternal life. And that is the same thing that Jesus Christ will do for us today. God understands what we often don't. Life here is short compared to eternity. Are you languishing in sin's Auschwitz this morning? You need, I need, the world needs his forgiveness more than anything. And that is the whole truth.